Hey there, Pwncasters. Today, we have a little bit more of a somber show. We'll probably include less of our normal jokes. I don't know about Jeremy. I think we can squeeze in a few. John, not today. Oh, snap. You guys sound serious. Why? Today, we're going to talk about brain death and how you establish brain death in a patient. Oh, I got you now. So, but but really, no no jokes at all? Probably not. So you're saying there's a chance. Literally the first 30 seconds of the episode and we already broke our rule. So, moving on. Today we wanted to talk about brain death. And as ICU providers, we deal with comatose patients in the ICU all the time. We frequently run into this scenario where we have to determine whether or not a patient is actually brain dead. At our center, we're also a transplant center, so this comes up even more in our ICUs. But all three of us have worked in community ICUs. It's prevalent in those ICUs as well. Part of the reason I wanted to make this episode, other than just taking a week off of writing corny jokes, was because I didn't see a lot of material out there on brain death. In fact, nearly none outside of some traditional sources like up to date. Before we talk about brain death, Let's talk about death in general. When you say someone died to the majority of the world, they think cardiac death, as in their heart stops beating. And that's definitely the most common. But there are a thousand ways to die. Sorry, it's cardiac death is not the only way to die. And uh, the other way to die that obviously we're talking about in this episode is death of the brain. So cardiac death is pretty easy. You know, the old classic beep, 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 beep that we hear in shows. So that's asystole, right? So in asystole, the heart stops and cardiac function doesn't recover. So pretty simple, right? Cardiac death is very easy for us to understand as people and clinicians. Brain death can be a little more tricky, especially for families. The basic definition is pretty simple. So brain death implies the permanent absence of brain function. So specifically what we're talking about is both in the cerebrum, so sort of uh, cortical function, but also brainstem functions. So yeah, the definition is pretty simple, but I think people get confused because brain dead is also used as a slang term. And when it's used in slang non-medically, a lot of times people just mean that the patient has severe brain damage or perhaps they, they mean a patient in a persistent vegetative state. It's important to note those patients do not have clinically established brain death. Can we talk about the kind of events that lead to brain death? The most common reasons are trauma, subarachnoid hemorrhage, intracerebral hemorrhage, anoxic injury, and ischemic strokes. The takeaway here is you're looking for a catastrophic injury, which we're going to talk about more in a minute. But let's get on to the main point of the episode. How do we determine when our patient has clinical brain death? you think that would be an easy answer, but it varies from state to state and even hospital to hospital. The U.S. law equates brain death to cardiac death, but doesn't give specific criteria. In patients pronounced brain dead, there can be a wide variability in documentation and criteria used. Why don't we kind of rewind and start at the beginning? So who should we test for brain death? I think we have, or at least I have had, a lot of patients who are slow to wake up after a variety of critical illnesses. Maybe we had this patient on too many sedatives for too long a period of time. Maybe they have some metabolic reason to not be waking up like liver or kidney disease, or maybe they're just still in shock. Or all the above. Or yeah, that too, especially. But back to the beginning, in our comatose patients, we should make sure that we minimize all sedation from the jump. This can be a little bit more difficult than it sounds. Really, I recommend discontinuing all continuous sedatives or pain medications and avoiding or even discontinuing all push medications as well. That could cloud your mental status examination. So, Rachel, that sounded pretty simple. 
But I think I know what you mean. It's simple for us as providers who don't have to look at that patient in pain or in myoclonus or with seizure-like activity and endure the family's constant questions throughout the day because their loved one in this situation can be pretty difficult to look at. I think it's helpful to make sure we're communicating with families in these patients who are comatose and may look uncomfortable or may be having those myoclonic jerks. Have that open-ended communication with both nurses, other team members, and the patient's family. I think it's good to establish kind of a goal and let people know why you're not giving a sedative medication or why you're not giving that fentanyl so that everybody's kind of on the same page and it doesn't seem cruel. So we've gotten rid of our sedatives and pain medications. It's days later and our patient still isn't waking up. What now? So we need some more information. One of the things that I would do first is start checking reflexes. Do they have a cough and a gag? Which in the ICU, we just use the Ballard suction on the endotracheal tube. Do they have a corneal reflex? Can we go off-road for a second? And uh, should we routinely be testing a gag reflex in patients who we're not formally assessing brain death for? Like, let's say you got that dude who rolls in who's just, like, mentally toasted and not waking up. Should we stick a tongue depressor back and check a gag? I know where you're going with this. I've heard the <laughs> argument that that's uh, cruel. And uh, I don't know. Maybe it is. But I worry about ask Like, if you're worried about uh, airway protection, the, yeah, I always worry about aspiration. Tube? No. No, no. Okay. Yeah, I, I would potentially agree with you there. If their GCS is less than 8, which sounds like it yeah. might be. Right. Go ahead and intubate them. Before you care right. if they have a gag or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway. Besides the sort of reflexes, you can also do this informal apnea test. And this is not to be confused with a formal apnea test that we're going to talk about later. If your patient's on the ventilator, just turn the respiratory rate very low, something in the neighborhood of four breaths a minute, and take a look and see if the patient will spontaneously make some respiratory effort and breathe above that rate on their own. If they have any reflexes or they do make their own respiratory effort, you can stop your informal brain death testing. They don't have clinical brain death. So let's continue and say we are still thinking they might have clinical brain death. What's next? First, there are a number of things you must make sure are normal prior to further testing. Let's call them brain death prerequisites. A lot more morbid than prereqs for grad school, but okay. The prereqs are a core temp that is normothermic or greater than 97 degrees Fahrenheit, a normal blood pressure, and you could use vasopressors to get it there, no drug intoxication or poisoning, no electrolyte, acid base, endocrine, or shock abnormalities. So for these, think sodium abnormalities, glucose abnormalities, acidosis, and think your multipressor shock patients. These labs don't have to be perfect, but they do need to be relatively normal. So, hey, if your sodium's like 147, a little bit outside of the normal range, you can still move forward with your brain death testing. You don't have to wait until that's normal, so to speak. So sodium of 116 would disqualify a patient from brain death testing, for example. Yep. So in that patient, you'd want to get it corrected and then reassess. So we've met sort of our brain death prerequisites. What do we move on to next? So next, you want to do a clinical examination for brain death, and that needs to typically be done by two different physicians. One neurologist and one intensivist, right? At a lot of our hospitals, yes, I would say that's probably the preferred option. But at some of our community hospitals, it's not always feasible to get a neurologist in-house at the specific time along with that intensivist. And I'm sure that's the scenario out there. So just to clarify, is this kind of a best practice recommendation or is this 
a component of the criteria for establishing brain death? So the criteria to establish brain death is two separate clinical examinations that result in in brain death. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a physician. That definitely doesn't have to be a neurologist or intensivist or another specialty type of physician. And that's all it is. And it varies from state to state. Every state's a little different. In Georgia, for example, where we practice, it does not need to be a physician. However, in our hospital system, we prefer it be one a neurologist and one an intensivist. But that's totally going to depend on your site and what you have access to. So what specifically does a clinical brain death examination include? At a minimum, it includes no response to pain anywhere and a complete cranial nerve exam to be negative. Is this back to your sort of cough gag reflexes, I guess? And you may also want to include those pupillary and corneal reflexes, the oculovestibular reflex, which is tested with cold calorics, which to remind all of our listeners out there, take your patient's head, turn it to the side, take some cold saline, that's sort of iced saline, and take some drops and put it inside of the ear and check the eyes for nystagmus. And then we have the oculocephalic reflex, which is tested with the doll's eyes maneuver, which we can include in the show notes. All right, so we've suspected brain death. We've met our prerequisites. And now we've had two clinicians do a clinical examination for brain death. We're done, aren't we? Nope. There's another important part, and that is the formal apnea test. A formal apnea test essentially is disconnecting the patient from the ventilator after a period of pre-oxygenation and determining if there will be a respiratory response to a rising partial pressure of CO2. So to do the apnea test, you first start with pre-oxygenation, put the FiO2 up to 100% on the vent for 10 minutes, and you should reduce your minute ventilation if it has been elevated in your patient to create eucapnea, or for those of you who don't know what that means, a PaCO2 of around 40 If your peep was super aggressive, go ahead and reduce it back to five if possible. I don't think I've ever used the word eucapnea. It is very cool word. Right before you disconnect the patient from the ventilator, you want to make sure you draw one more arterial blood gas so that you kind of have that baseline before the apnea test is begun. The clinician should observe the patient for respiratory movement for about 8 to 10 minutes. Just before putting them back on the ventilator, check one more ABG. It's considered a positive apnea test if the PaCO2 rises to greater than 60 millimeters of mercury or there's a change greater than 20 millimeters of mercury coupled with a pH of less than 7.28. And this always bothered me about medical terminology, but by positive, you mean that's a bad thing. Kind of reminds me of uh, The Office when... uh, Kevin has a skin biopsy done, and he says that it's negative, and Michael Scott's like, oh, God, no. And then he goes to the interview, and he's like, I just found out negative meant a good thing. This is sort of like that. You can cut that if you want to, but whatever. I like it. Uh, A positive test in in this case is consistent with clinical brain death. And again, you really want to look for that PaCO2 above 60 or greater than 20 millimeters of mercury from baseline, along with a pH less than 7.28. You want to make sure you get those two ABGs, both pre-apnea test and post. During the disconnect phase, the patient has oxygen running via a tracheal cannula at 6 liters per minute. Or in other words, you're going to take a nasal cannula and you're going to place it down their endotracheal tube, actually if you can get it, near their carina. So you just like cut nasal cannula before the nope, nasal cannula? You, you just literally shove it just down? shove it in. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. It's, 
It just seems like there's a better way. <laughs> yep. So there's a there's a couple other ways, and we'll we'll put some pictures on the website. Uh, this has been the uh, tried and true, and apparently, you know, I wasn't around when they started this. Apparently, they haven't come up with anything much better because we're still doing it. And this is the way that we do these apnea tests in our center. Uh, but you can also use a T-piece on a humidifier. We'll show some pictures of that. So there's a couple other options, but this is the old tried-and-true method. Go ahead and drop us a line if you want to get in on business for designing a new uh, new cannula for brain death testing. Right. I think the market's ripe. So we did have an anecdotal story of, a, of something to be aware of. Uh, we had a patient uh, with a small endotracheal tube in that we were going to try to establish clinical brain death on. They, I think they had either a 6.0 or a 6.5 endotracheal tube. They were a difficult intubation. I can't recall why at this time. But when we were doing the formal apnea test, uh, everything looked like it was going okay during the test. And as the respiratory therapist removed the tracheal cannula, there was an extreme exhalation from the patient because the uh, tracheal cannula was blocking the entire endotracheal tube, essentially, um, because just the bore was smaller and would barely fit the tracheal cannula. So that's something to consider if you're doing this test on someone with a small endotracheal tube. So I suppose in that scenario, we would allow uh, TPs to just be connected to the, yeah. So you probably have to repeat the apnea test without the obstruction, of course. Okay. It's common to see patients that are unable to complete the apnea testing due to hypotension or arrhythmias. This can be mitigated by a quality pre-oxygenation period, reducing electrolyte disturbances beforehand, and optimizing their blood pressure. John tried his best to not include any physiology in here, but uh, here I am, back on my nonsense again. Dang This it. is just a reminder that you don't need to be ventilating in order to oxygenate. Oxygenation is all based on surface area and the concentration of FiO2 inside of the lungs, whereas carbon dioxide is all dependent on convection and ventilation. So this is why a patient can be pre-oxygenated, left apneic, and still be saturating just fine while their PaCO2 rises. So moving on, let's talk about some cases that aren't clear-cut. For whatever reason, we maybe can't get all of the requirements to establish clinical brain death. Just to remind you, the requirements are a catastrophic injury, two clinical exams consistent with brain death, and a positive apnea test in a patient that met all their prerequisites, such as no electrolyte abnormalities and no acid-based disturbances. If for one reason or another you can't get every one of those established in your patient, you have to add something else. And that test of choice really now is becoming the perfusion scan, or sometimes more medically known as the cerebral scintigraph- scintigraphy. I gave my word. And that test. I believe it's scantigraphy. <laughs> <laughs> That's Shin- I'm totally lying. Scintigraphy. <laughs> In a perfusion scan, dye is injected through a peripheral vein, and then the brain is scanned for uptake of that die. It has to be officially read by a radiologist, and a scan that's consistent with clinical brain death would essentially show complete lack of perfusion. And in that case, the patient would meet clinical criteria for brain death. It's also not uncommon for there to be reduced flow, but still some flow. If this happens on a patient you think otherwise meets brain death criteria, then continue to support and repeat the scan in 12 to 24 hours. Now, what about centers that don't have access to brain perfusion scanning? 
So another kind of older standby that's still done is an EEG. And an EEG in a patient who's clinically brain dead is going to look flatlined, essentially. So there's decent evidence out there for utilizing EEG as an adjunct in your establishing clinical brain death, but it's nowhere near as confirmatory as a perfusion scan. And there are several illnesses, including drug intoxication, for example, that can produce a very similar flatlined EEG. Something that we've kind of hinted at here and there, but haven't overtly said, is that brain death, just like clinical death, is sort of an evolutionary process. And I don't mean the sciencey evolutionary. I mean, so you perform a brain death examination on clinical day one, as that patient's illness progresses, say their cerebral edema gets worse, or their anoxia manifestations get worse, their clinical exam may worsen. So day one, they may not have brain death, or they may have flow. But day two, they may have more signs of brain death, Day three, that's when you may have complete lack of flow on a perfusion scan and lack of, uh, of brainstem reflexes. So make sure that you're repeating your exam, especially if you have clinical suspicion. All right. So we've met brain death criteria. Now what? The patient is dead. Well, yes. But like everything in medicine, it's not always that simple. So first up, you need to discuss it with your patient's family, because as Jamie just alluded to, a lot of times this process takes several days to even weeks at times. Hopefully during that time, you've already established a good relationship with that family. And remember, patients' families, like we said at the beginning, they're thinking of death as cardiac death. They've seen the movies. They see what death looks like. Take some time to explain that brain death is also another form of death, so they understand. Anecdotally, my very first case of brain death in a patient that I had It was a little bit unsettling to see a patient still ventilating, not breathing on their own, but on a ventilator, and to see a heartbeat, to perform an ultrasound exam, and to see a heart beating, to see pulses present on your examination, to hear lung sounds. Those things aren't classically associated with what I had considered to be death. So if me and us in medicine look at these patients and say that they kind of look alive, Imagine families who have been with these patients for years and years on end. It's really hard to wrap your mind around a patient being, quote, brain dead when they look alive, very much alive. That is so true. They looked at some observational studies of patients who had a clinical diagnosis of brain death and followed them over the next couple of days. And 99.9% of them outside of some weird children cases that we're intentionally not getting into today, all of those patients had cardiac death within a couple of days post-brain death. So after we've established the diagnosis of brain death, after we have declared the patient officially brain dead according to our state and local hospital criteria, and we've discussed with the family, what are some next steps that we need to consider? So after you've talked to the family, explained what brain death is, you should notify your state's organ donation team. And a lot of times, I would say, hopefully the majority of the times, they already know about this patient in advance and are on site ready to help you out. 
If you are the one pronouncing clinical brain death, you should for sure not be having an organ donation discussion with your patient. And really, most of these organizations that deal with organ donation are well-trained in having non-coercive discussions with the patient, uh, giving them full informed consent on the risks, benefits, and all that kind of stuff in the lives that they could save and the reasons that they could also say no. And no matter what center you're at, there are plenty of people who would go and pick up the patient and transport them to an organ donation center where they could undergo uh, organ transplantation. Well, I'd add to that, if you haven't had a lot of interaction with your state's organ donation center, they are a great resource. And if you reach out to them, they would be happy to kind of talk through their process with you. We communicate with them a lot here, and they've been a super valuable resource for us over the years. A scenario that's becoming, I don't want to say increasingly common, but I I suppose a scenario that I and my colleagues have seen a number of times throughout our careers is what should we do if the family doesn't understand the brain death diagnosis or a step further doesn't agree with it or a step even further? What about families that are being unrealistic or have other at times, maybe even angry expectations for how we should manage this patient who has now officially been declared brain dead. Yeah, that's an unfortunate situation, and it does happen from time to time, and I think we've all seen it. The official recommendations I've seen when looking this up for this episode is basically to continue to have an open communication with that family over the next several days, continue to educate them on what brain death is, and hope you don't have to get to the point of discontinuing life support devices without their consent, although there have been cases of that happening in our institution when these scenarios happen the protocol is to go ahead and notify essentially everyone notify the ethics team notify your risk management team notify your director uh, who will probably notify his director or her director the chief medical officer and get involved in these kinds of scenarios because it's that challenging of a scenario and there have been several legal cases in certain states throughout the u.s i'm sure you've all listening heard of some so this is a big deal and it comes up i think that about wraps us up for those of you who came here for the corny jokes i'm sorry that we likely let you down in this episode we didn't feel like it was in good taste to include those but those of you listening, at least you now know we have some taste in some class, even if it's a little limited. I'll do the summary. Brain death is a less frequent but still type of death that occurs when there is loss of brain function, usually after a catastrophic event. You can establish brain death after such an event via two clinical exams that include no response to pain and no cranial nerve reflexes. Once that has been established, an apnea test is done, and you should see no respiratory response of the patient and a rise in the PaCO2 of greater than 60 or a rise greater than 20 from baseline and a pH of less than 7.28. If all of those are true, your patient has a clinical brain death. You need to discuss that with the family. If you cannot complete the testing for whatever reason, you can add a confirmatory testing like a perfusion scan to assist with the diagnosis. Involve a neurologist whenever possible or similar specialist if you have access to one at your facility. And make sure the family has a discussion with the proper team about organ donation. Not only is it an amazing gift offered to another patient in need, it regularly helps families in bereavement. As a transplant center, the gift of organ donation has allowed our center to help hundreds of patients in need every single year. So getting a little bit personal here, I watched Seven Pounds that Will Smith movie. You know, I'm not going to spoil it, but it's pretty old, so I think the spoiler window's out. On an airplane... What is the spoiler window? Five years? I I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I watched it on an airplane, and oh my, like, I cried that entire flight. (laughs) 
But now, after having watched that movie and having taken part in patients donating their bodies for organ donation, it's it's jokes aside, have, it's become even more meaningful to me for uh, when people become organ donors. So I, I have that uh, on my license, I think, without coercing anybody to do it. I do as well. Donate your organs. Same. You don't need them when you die. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. And donate your organs.